Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Glad to have you on board. Got Jim Marty here in Longmont, Colorado, and my partner, Larry Mishkin from Chicago, was on the line. Hi, Jim. How are you today? Good. It's a beautiful day here in Colorado, about 86 degrees and sunny out, and we have lots to talk about. How are things in Chicago? Uh, same. It's lovely here in Chicago. Weather's nice. And earlier this week, our governor signed the adult use legislation, so we're, we're very happy and very excited. That's excellent. That is very exciting. Illinois is a big population state, and having full adult use is going to be huge because, in my opinion, Illinois kind of messed up on medical marijuana. I thought their um, illness list was too restrictive. I thought the doctors um, were not on board with signing up patients, so you had an imbalance of a lot of production capacity in Illinois and not a lot of patients. So now all that production capability can be focused on the adult population. Well, here's something that's really interesting about that, Jim, and this leads me to what I'd like to talk about with you today for a few minutes, and that's forever the problem for the, the, the people with the uh, uh, Illinois medical program was the patient count was so low, exactly as the reasons you stated. The condition list was too restrictive. Doctors were being asked to write recommendations. Patients had to give fingerprints, and it was going absolutely nowhere. One by one, those 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 hurdles fell away, uh, and now even to the point where once you go and you sign up, within 24 hours you get a provisional card. You know, as long as you know you're not on the FBI's most wanted list or anything like that. I was just talking to somebody the other day, and I hadn't checked in in a while and realized this. All of a sudden, the patient population in Illinois has shot up to almost 70,000 people, and that's with adult use coming right at the first of the year. So, here's my question. And you, you know, what happened in Colorado? What happens to the medical market when adult use shows up? It stays strong for a variety of reasons. So, yeah, we got our high watermark for patient count, and our population is about 6 million. Do you know what Illinois is? About 12 million people. Yeah, it's almost twice our size of people. And uh, so our high watermark for medical patients was about 120,000. And it's drifted down since full adult use, but I still think we have over 80,000 medical patients on the rolls. And there's a couple of big reasons for that is for recreational adult use, you pay about a 21% tax at the cash register. So your $10 joint costs you $12 and change. If you're a medical marijuana patient, you just pay the regular Colorado sales tax of about 7 to 8%. So you save on taxes, and you also save on prices. A lot of times dispensers will have lower prices for medical patients. And then the big one is that in Colorado, if you, have a, you can get a medical card at 18, but you can't buy adult use until you're 21. So well, that's we have an 18 to 21-year-old 20 medical market that's very strong here in Colorado as well. Interesting. Let me ask you this. How does it work with supply? And what I mean is, you know, you, people in Illinois are going to their medical uh, dispensaries right now. Between now and January 1st, when the program kicks in, the current dispensary license holders are going to be allowed to, A, take their current medical dispensary and make it a double-use, adult-use and medical, and get one additional adult-use dispensary license. So all of a sudden, you know, there's going to be twice as many dispensaries with a, a whole heck of a lot more people 
in Colorado, did they take any steps to make sure uh, that the supply necessary to take care of the patients would be preserved? Or was it up to the dispensary owners to designate the marijuana wherever they thought they could, you know, get the best sales from? Well, what's going on there is Colorado is a uh, free market system as far as the number of cultivation facilities, the number of extraction and retail. So the result of that, you take the states that don't have any limits on cultivation licenses, Colorado, Oregon, and Washington State being the most uh, prominent of those, they very quickly get to oversupply. So it's going to be important for Illinois because I think prices will stay high. I don't think you'll have overproduction, and you'll probably have a shortage because, for instance, do you know how many cultivation licenses are available in Illinois? Well, that's the thing. First, when, when it, uh, on January 1st, the only ones producing will be the current medical cultivation centers. There's 21 of them, and they've mm-hmm. been assuring us that they'll be able to meet our supply because they've only been growing on a relatively small percentage of their overall canopy space due to the you know, lack of a market because of all the restrictive conditions. So they take the position that now when they expand out to their full space, that they should be able to cover the initial surge of adult users. Does that make sense to you? It does. So January 1st is when the first adult sales will take place? Correct. And there'll be, there'll be no additional licenses offered besides those one-ons for the uh, dispensaries to the current donors until May, uh, at which time they'll be offering seventy up to 75 adult-use dispensaries, 40 what they're calling craft grows, meaning that your canopy space will be limited to no more than 5,000 square feet. And then they'll be giving out okay. 40 uh, processor licenses, which will be the first time that they'll be allowing processing to take place outside of a cultivation center. Wow. So, so Illinois is really moving forward on a lot of fronts. That's excellent. Oh, yeah. And will the cultivators be able to get a head start on January 1st? Will they be able to start growing adult-use plants in their medical cultivation facilities this fall to get a, a harvest under their belt for January 1st? That's exactly why I'm asking the, the question from before, because I'm getting questions from people who are saying, if we start growing now to ramp up for January 1st, we have to designate these plants one way or the other. Can we just grow them so that we, right? I mean, as soon as they can expand, they're already licensed to grow in their facility. They're just choosing to grow on a much smaller portion of it. I think that they can, yep. you know, relatively easily expand into the rest of their space. Once they get all the equipment set up, I'm sure they have to have the state come in and review it all and, and look it over. But, you know, these guys are already up and operating for three years now. They should know what they're doing and be able to do that relatively quickly, I would think. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of excess capacity, as you pointed out, because of the weak patient count wasn't being utilized. You know, it would be great if uh, Illinois could allow its cultivators to get one. I think you'd have enough time in the calendar as we sit here on uh, June 28th to get two and maybe even three harvest cycles under your belts, which would give you the inventory you're going to need when you're going to see long lines around the block at dispensaries on probably a very cold January 1st in Chicago. (laughs) Right. So the lesson is, you know, if you're a medical card holder, make sure you get there before the first of the year and stock up. Yes. Well, let's talk a little music because it's been a a great week for music. Once again, hearing nothing but rave reviews on Dead & Co. and Fish. 
Dead & Co. Right. Uh, played their first stadium show at Gillette Stadium. And probably it could have held 80,000 people if it sold out. Um, I wasn't at the show, but I talked to friends who were there, and they did not sell the top tier of the stadium. But they probably still had a good sixty to 70,000 people at the show. Once again, That's the set amazing. list was phenomenal. Um, best that some of my friends have ever seen them. And then uh, that was on Saturday night. And then the very next day, Sunday, they played City Field in Queens, New York, which is where the Mets oh, play. Sure. And yep. it's been pretty fun to watch the videos. I wasn't able to attend that show either. But the videos have been amazing. They, Jerry's Wolf guitar resides at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. And somebody yep. got permission to check it out bring it down to City Field, and John Mayer plays Jerry's Wolf guitar throughout the whole show at City Field. And uh, from the videos I've seen, it, it sure sounded pretty good. That's really incredible. And actually, I heard Parrish talking about that on the uh, Big Steve Hour on the uh, uh, Grateful Dead station on Sirius XM about uh, how they, they, they broke that out. And, you know, he was there to kind of oversee the whole scene and make sure it all went down okay and everything. And those are great stories too. But here, here's the question. Here's the question I'd love to ask you. You know, there's no doubt that when we're seeing Dead and Company, right? We're, we're missing Jerry. Jerry's not there anymore. Um, Phil, for whatever the reasons, and we don't have to get into all of that, is also not with them. And so, you know, we don't even have the core four. We have the two drummers. We have Bobby. I think there's no debate that they sound great. They're coming out with tremendous energy. The songs that they're playing are wonderful. But, you know, it kind of led me and my buddies at the last show we were at to kind of engage in this, you know, game of mental gymnastics for a few minutes and try and go through the lineup of the band. And really the core four, right, they're the ones who have been there through thick and thin, you know, now that Jerry's gone and everything. And, and I thought it might be fun if, you know, we over the course of the next couple of weeks, you know, we, we kind of examined different uh, positions in the band and, and discuss how the band could or could not survive without them. I think Jerry's the best one to talk about, so I like to put that one off to the end. Thought that I always have, and this is what we were talking about, is how necessary are the drummers? Don't get me wrong. I love Bill Kreutzman. I love Mickey Hart. And I think it can be fair to say that in this conversation, all of them play an integral role. Everybody in the band ultimately played an integral role to the whole thing. But now at this point, if they're not going to be playing kind of with the whole group together, you know, when I saw Bill with John Molo on drums, I thought he was tremendous. You know, there's been other drummers who have come in and done a great job. And really, when they're when the guys up front on the guitars are jamming, doesn't really matter who's in the back. And you know, maybe yes, maybe no. I want to hear what you say about that first, then I'll answer. Well, certainly, um, Bill Kreutzman and Mickey Hart, as the drummers for the Grateful Dead, are you know one of the great partnerships in rock and roll history. I'd put it right there with Lennon McCartney, Jagger Richards, but those two drummers play an absolute synchronicity. In fact, there's stories that sometimes before the show, they'll feel each other's pulse, and their pulse will be in beat. And so if you watch those two, they are just absolutely, totally synchronized drumming. In fact, Jerry actually switched sides of the stage when Mickey Hart joined the band. He used to be on the other side, always mixed up stage right or stage left, but he was more in front of Billy Kreutzman or more towards the middle in the 70s, early 70s. And then he switched sides to be on Mickey's side because he liked the military cadence of Mickey's playing. Uh, Mickey got his start as a drummer in the Air Force band, Air Force Marching Band. So when he came out of the Air Force, 
in around 67, and by free circumstance, joined the Grateful Dead. It, he brought a military cadence and a discipline. Billy, Bill Kreutzmann, is more of a jazz drummer. Right. Jerry's theory on drummers was that you never stop. Whatever you do, never stop drumming. And Billy really has that down. He'll just roll through a 90-minute set, and even between the songs, when the others are finding their way into the next song, he'll still be drumming right along. But uh, those are my comments on the drummers. Just a, a great team, a great pair, and the fact they've had the good health to tour hard and play hard up into their 70s. They're well into their 70s now. It's just one of the great gifts that we've had to be able to watch these two guys as they age. I'm going to let you jump in, and then I have a point about Mickey Hart is branding some cannabis I was seeing on the Internet. But you go and comment on what I just said. Well, first of all, you know, there's a part of me that wants to just shut up and walk away because I don't know that I could say it any better than you just said it. And, and you know, <laughs> what I love about talking with you, Jim, is that there's always this insight that I, I didn't know the story about Mickey Hart and the military band and the case. That this is, that, that, that makes sense, and it's, it, it's tremendous. You know, when I was watching him at Wrigley Field, it was interesting because they had the camera on, at least every time I looked up, they had it on Billy a lot more than they had it on Mickey. And the thing about Bill that I love when he's drumming is he, he looks, it's effortless. If you yeah. just saw him from the waist yeah. up and you couldn't see his arms, you wouldn't know that he was drumming. It's just like a natural extension of his arms, and he's so fluid. It just, you know, it, it's, it's almost a relaxed style that I'm, I'm not a drummer, so I can't explain it. But the, none of those, you know, like you see the, the rock and roll drummers of the 70s and 80s where their sticks are flying all over the place. And, and Bill's just sitting up there drumming away, and, and Mickey's a little more demonstrative i think when he drums and and what i've noticed certainly is you know as he's gotten a little bit older his he's mellowed it out a little bit on his side too and there was that period of time when uh, mickey left the band following the issues with his father as the manager you know having taken some money which i never knew that the song mm -hmm. he's gone was about mickey's father i always thought it was about pig yes. until somebody told me one day but you know and mickey's a little bit strange i remember uh Steve Parrish in his book saying that originally the band had him working with Mickey and Ramrod was working with Jerry, but Steve just couldn't mesh with Mickey. They, they just couldn't see eye to eye. And so he was going to leave the, the band and Ramrod switched with him and let Steve go work with Jerry. And Ramrod came over to work with Mickey, you know, to keep harmony and keep everybody in the band. And they said he was the one guy who could, you know, give it back and forth with Mickey. But here's the thing about Mickey that you know, to me, will always endear him and make him so integral. He wrote the music for Fire on the Mountain. You know, it's a Robert Hunter song, but that's Mickey Hart's music. And I always, you know, tend to forget that from time to time. But it, but it's one of my all-time favorite. That Fire on, uh, Scarlet Begonias is great, but Scarlet Begonias, knowing they're going into Fire on the Mountain, is like, oh, you know, that'll kick you off to a whole other level. And I love the fact that, you know, Mickey wrote it, and it's so... In, so time endearing and everything, it's just a great tune. He's such a talented person, isn't it? So, yeah, okay. What about his branding? No, great comments, great comments. For you young people listening, back in the days when our dead shows were uh, recorded on audio cassettes, we would write on the outside <laughs> for Scarlet Begonias into Fire on the Mountain, Scarlet with an arrow and fire, Scarlet Arrow Fire would indicate a uh, Scarlet Begonias and Sapphire on the Mountain, which always seem to go together rather nicely. Absolutely. One of my favorites. 
great way to start a set or tell them to start a show or anywhere they want to stick it in is okay with me. So Mickey Hart's brand is called, uh, we're, I just had it right here, Free Your Mind, uh, which is a Northern California strain. So mind your head. Mind oh. your head. And you'll be able to pa uh, purchase that in 10 packs of one-third of a gram joints. And it's got high wow. CBD. But I seriously doubt that Mickey's out in the uh, cultivation center tending those plants and trimming and harvesting. I think it's more like a Willie Nelson deal where he's lending his name to the product yeah. and not necessarily, maybe, he might be doing a little bit of testing, but uh, field testing, I should say. That's funny that Mickey's doing it. You know, that's another thing I like about Mickey, too. You know, I, he would not have been my first choice in terms of which one of the guys, uh, you know, would, would start a cannabis brand. And, you know, I mean, I, I guess my obvious choice of all time would have been Jerry. But after Jerry, I would have thought Billy. I, Billy seems to me to be the kind of guy who likes to sit around and smoke a joint. Bob Weir always seemed a little too hyperactive to, to, to spend too much time smoking marijuana. But I don't know. You know, so Those are just my yeah. observations from the peanut gallery. Yeah. But one other observation on, on Billy Kreutzman's side is one of my favorite Bill Kreutzman experiences is when Fish got back together in uh, 2009 and played Red Rocks. They played four shows at Red Rocks on that reunion tour the summer of 2009. For an entire uh -huh. second set at Red Rocks, Billy Kreutzman sat in on the drums with John Fishman. And it's cool. available out there. It's easy to find. And it's probably one of the best character zeros I've ever heard with Billy on drums with, with Fishman. So if you like the song Character Zero by Fish, check out the, sure. I believe it's August 2009 at Red Rocks. Very, very good. It was pretty fun. And at the end of the set, Fishman said, I want to have my drummer back. <laughs> hey, listen, I know we're about to run out of time, but before we go, you're, you're doing widespread panic this weekend, aren't you? Yeah, I'm going to the Sunday matinee, 6 p.m. show. Looking forward to it. It'll be a, a perfect Red Rock day for me because I'm going to get up Excellent. with my friends and family who are going to the show with me. I'm going to cook everybody a good breakfast, and as soon as breakfast is over, we're going to head right to Red Rocks, sit on the stairs and play some cribbage. So we're the first ones in for GA. And, um, yeah, the, the uh, Sunday shows are very fun because it starts at 6 p.m. and there's no warm-up band, so the entire first set is in broad daylight. And then and since it's a Sunday night work night, it's very cool that we can get out of there about 9.30, 10 o'clock and uh, quote uh, Steve Parrish, home before midnight. That's awesome, man. That's perfect. That'll be great fun for you guys. Um, we've got a whole bunch of music coming up here soon. J-Rad, Fish. I'm sorry I won't be able to join you guys out there for uh, Folsom Field this year. But, you know, for you to think about and for our listeners to mark on their calendars, last weekend in July I'm going to be out your way uh, in the Boulder area to see uh, Tedeschi Trucks. And we should talk about that day, too. But to see them at Red Rock. Very good. So... Maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll have to consider doing a show from the barn that weekend, and uh, if we can get our, our wonderful producer, Dan Hummiston, out there with us, then we'd really have a good time. That sounds great. And um, we'll be, the next show that we're going to do is July 5th. It will be a broadcast from my barn right before the Dead & Co. show over at Folsom Field in Boulder. And we're going to have a special guest, a good friend of mine, Duke Rumley. And Duke works in the uh, rehab business, alcohol and drug rehab. And so we're going to get some of his insights 
on what he sees as some of the social impacts of legal cannabis. So we'll have that to look forward to. That's awesome. And we're going to talk about whether or not Bill Lesh is replaceable, especially since uh, Dead & Co. have been doing wonderful with O'Teal. Uh, but I'll be interested yep. to hear your thoughts on that next week, too. Well, you're going to get some good, fresh thoughts, because I just saw Phil on May 31st, and at 79 years old, he completely filled Red Rocks with his base. It was wonderful. So I have lots of good comments. I've never been disappointed on a Phil and Friends show. So um, very good. Uh, all right, everybody. Wonderful. It's, uh, over and out from the uh, Deadhead Cannabis Show. Thank you, Jim, Larry, Michigan, signing off. Have a great time at Whitespread. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name's Kate, and I'm your host of the Pop Moms podcast. I started the Pop Moms podcast, well, because I wanted to end the stigma against using cannabis, specifically with moms, but also anyone who chooses to consume. I strive for a balance of humor and education, along with some pretty rad guests, to help combat social biases that come with consuming cannabis. Kids are hard. Join me for regular podcast episodes packed with parenting hacks, real-life stories, and of course, my favorite cannabis products. The days are long, but the years are short. So roll another J and take a deep breath. Keep blazing and stay amazing.